Get ready to be inspired by the great things happening in rural education. The Rural Scoop will bring you new ideas and innovative solutions, will dive into education issues, and will highlight what's working in your rural communities. You will hear from a variety of educators, administrators, professionals, and others who will provide relevant and engaging content in each episode. And now, serving up the scoop, here's your host, Dr. Melissa Sadorf. Welcome back, Rural Scoop listeners, for a new series of podcasts that I'm really excited to launch. The Rural Scoop has been teamed up with the Region 15 Comprehensive Center at WestEd to look at rural education from multiple perspectives based on the book, Cultivating Rural Education, a People-Focused Approach for States. I also have the great pleasure of co-hosting with Julie Duffield, who I met through the Comprehensive Center, and she has graciously agreed to join me on this journey, and I'm excited to have her with me. Thank you, Julie, for saying yes to this collaboration. I'm excited. Well, Melissa, it's so great to say yes to you because as an active member of the community of practice, you um, always ground us in what's real out there as your superintendent role, so thank you. And just to say the Regional Comprehensive Center supports four states and it's a cross state initiative with Arizona, California, Nevada, and Utah. And we focus on understanding the economic and academic challenges of that face rural communities, but also the unique assets and the opportunities for improvement. And we're composed of, you know, a cross-section of uh, state agencies, folks from different programs, as well as, you know, LEA superintendents. We're looking at leadership, some really important perspective in rural, as well as associations of which you are the um, elected president of the rural association. So, and I really, it's my great pleasure to um, meet the editors of the publication, um, Sam Rady and Caitlin Howley know them from my previous hat, which was to support the Center for School Turnaround. And as the director of the IFC at Temple University, Caitlin was then the director of the Appalachian Regional Comprehensive Center. And I was really grateful that she uh, specializes in rural education and STEM education and organization building. I just learned one of her new projects is actually looking and leading the evaluation of an NSF-funded alliance in West Virginia that seeks to improve the persistence of rural first-generation and other underrepresentation students in their STEM major. So, Caitlin, welcome. And uh, then I'd formally like to introduce Sam Redding. Sam has um, been involved in education for a long time and has worn many different hats, including being the executive leader at the ADI Leadership, where he's now the chief learning scientist. And, you know, Sam has worked with many national centers that support state agencies, such as the Center for School Turnaround I mentioned and the Center for Building State Capacity. And he's consulted with 30 SEAs, Sam, and districts across the country. Caitlin, would you like to add anything? I guess an additional uh, thing I might share is that um, my professional identity is as a sociologist. So although I work principally in education, research, program evaluation, and technical assistance, I often come at it from the angle of sociology. Sam, anything to add? Uh just this, and that is because I've lived rural my whole life, uh, 
I just think that's this is the world. I don't know it's something apart from the rest of the world. And uh, through my work, I've worked in school improvement in you know, urban, suburban, rural, all over the country, all over in this and that. But I never went to one thinking I'm entering, I'm coming here with a rural lens. I came here from a school improvement lens. So this is a unique turn for me. And it's been uh, very exciting. I mean, I've taught in rural schools. I, my wife taught in rural schools. My kids teach in rural schools. I have grandkids in rural schools. Rural is just who we are. But I honestly never thought of it so much that way. So that might be uh, one way to introduce how I approach this book project. Well, thank you. Yeah, because I, I could see there was a lot of passion as well as a lot of information where this came from. And Caitlin, you you introduced the book by sort of saying what rule is and it isn't. So set, set the stage. Could you elaborate a little more about why that was important to point out and discuss? First of all, it's important to acknowledge that morality is actually a thing, that it is a context in which people live and work and grow. And that that particular context, as various as it might be across all the different places in this country, rural people and places share some things in common that really structure what their worlds look like and what resources they have close access to. So it was important to set the stage and say, this is in fact um, a very different and unique sort of context from non-rural. So that sort of led us to work with uh, Dr. Jennifer Selig, who wrote a chapter exploring the various definitions of rurality and helping people understand what they share in common, even though they may be wildly different in terms of geography and demography. And Caitlin, I think that's so important that people understand that rural is not a monolith, that there is context depending on where you're located and what's around you and where the industries are and what the demographics of a place look like, what are the assets. So I appreciate that you set the stage that way because it's different and it depends are often the things that we talk about when we talk about what works in a rural community. So building on that, um, I'm just sort of curious about your intended audience for this publication. You know, out of one in five, only one person has really grown up in a rural context. And so when you're making decisions around education, policy, practices, having that is so key. And to quote the book, you say, uh, rural people know how to live in rural communities. So let me get a, a little bit of the early history of how the book came about, and then I'll let Caitlin pick it up at the appropriate moment. But Steve was there at the at the birth, you might say, and that is the uh, comprehensive center was recompeted. We had all new centers, new regions, all that, and and I was working with several of them. One of which is Region 15, and uh, we met. And at that time, I realized these centers were all supposed to give a certain amount of their effort to rural. And yet their primary client was the SEA, although they also have the opportunity to work with LEAs and schools, but the, the, the state was to be a primary client. And that's when it started hitting me like, well, what is it a state does with rural? Because what is so different, I think, about it is if I went to a state 
an SEA and said, I'd like to meet with your special ed department. They'd probably, you know, give me a room full of people and a director or school improvement or curriculum. But even in very rural states, there's not necessarily in an SEA a whole rural department or a rural director. And yet states, I think, are attentive to the fact that they have uh, so, so many uh, rural schools. So we were just about to get something going on rural and then COVID hit. And a lot of what we had planned got kind of wiped out. But I took that as an opportunity to say, okay, in this void, uh, while we aren't able to travel and do a lot that we wanted, it's probably a good time to brush up on rural education and maybe look at something more from a lens of not necessarily the SEA, but more from a lens of what can state level entities and organizations that say they care about it, rural education, what can they actually do to assist and help and support and grow and cultivate rural education by, uh, you know, helping people like Melissa, who's a superintendent of a rural district. So with that in mind, I thought I need to go somebody that really knows about this. And so I knew who knew about it. And that was Caitlin. And uh, I was aware of her writings. I was aware of her background. I was aware of her uh, philosophy of life to a certain extent. And so I called her and said, Caitlin, let's do a book. And then uh, Caitlin kind of took it from there. I think Sam really uh, hit it on the head when he uh, talked about how the audience is sort of an expansion out from state departments of education to the array of state level organizations, entities, advocacy groups who work from their various perspectives to support rural people in places and schools. And the emphasis on a kind of cross-sector collaboration seemed really important to us because the issues that affect rural educators, students, families, communities, schools are not simply educational. They are issues that cross all sorts of lines in terms of the human experience, health, mental health, de-transportation, et cetera. So for us, that meant that we needed to lean into the idea of cross-sector collaboration at the state level. It's partly to do with the fact that it's people who make things happen. It is true that there are structures and systems and organizations, but it's really the people within them who make things happen, who have the insights that can change practices and policies and programs. And secondly, we thought it very important to understand that it's the lived experience of people in rural places who can really help craft policies and practices and supports from state level entities that will be most helpful to them. So it's also a nod to inviting in those voices to planning. I think we were very conscious of the fact that particularly in rural areas, what is strong about them are relationships among people. We say that. So if that's true, then let's get it close to people. I have a, a real tendency to want to support local, local effort, local initiative, local imagination. But I also know that there's a state role and state organizational role in how you foster that, how you encourage it, how you support it without how you step on it. So I use the term one with uh, uh, Caitlin. I said, okay, I'll try not to use this on the uh, podcast. But I said, what we aren't saying is that the state should come in and Bigfoot 
uh, rural areas. But what we're saying is they could sure be catalysts for a lot of what you want the people at local areas to take hold of and create for themselves. And so I think that was uh, a lot of the thought. And so we said, who are those people? And so we got, uh, after we had Jenny do the uh, chapter on a clear view, like what the heck do we mean by rural? What are the different varieties? Then we got uh, an author who was really good on, tell us about rural educators, teachers, principals, superintendents, whatever. The, another one that say, tell us about uh, rural learners. What's it like to be a student in a rural area? What are your particular uh, needs and challenges and, and strengths? And, and thirdly, what about rural communities? And by that, we mean the people that surround those schools, school board members and uh, com community leaders and just uh, community organizations, people that are close to home, but just outside the school itself. So we came at it from that, that uh, approach of uh, people, what we call the people-focused approach. Sam, I'd like to follow up on that a little bit. Can you tell me about the non-people approaches that you've seen that were tried in rural places that were not effective? <laughs> I, I'm going to kick that one to Caitlin because uh, she's got more of a grasp for projects and programs and things that are tried and failed. I, I, I came at that question a little bit from a background also and a lot of, a lot of work on uh, family engagement and that type of thing, like very community uh, and, and did a book chapter once called the grassroots from the top, top down, meaning uh, you want to encourage the grassroots, but they're the things a state can do. So mm -hmm. in that area, I'd seen a lot of things that were over-programmed, over-structured, overly one size fits all, more about going to an area and telling them what they ought to do than engage them in uh, an understanding what they need to do for themselves. So those are more general terms, and, and Caitlin can maybe provide more specifics. I am not going to call out any programs in particular. <laughs> that's, what that's what I thought you'd say. However, you know, I have seen programs that, that, that appear to embrace the philosophy that if only we provide the correct technical guidance, schools in this particular program will improve rapidly. And the problem with those sorts of approaches is that they overlook the human and contextual factors entirely. You can recommend something to people, but if it does not honor their needs, their perspectives, their experiences, it will not have as nearly um, an influence as it could have otherwise. So I, I think those approaches have some challenges. Um, I think that there are also approaches that make unfair assumptions about rural people and resources that um, either they have the kinds of infrastructures that larger places might have, data systems, the ability to write grants, instructional, specialized instructional space to support particular kinds of instructional activities, or they make unfair assumptions about the capacity of people in terms of underestimating what they're capable of. I mean, I think that there is um, some stereotyping about what rural people are like. I think that those uh, assumptions can impede genuine connection and genuine partnership. 
Yeah, and I was thinking in theme two, the author goes into a lot about reframing rule, not as a deficit model, but reframing it as a circumstances and conditions and possibilities and building on assets. So I really appreciated that. And one of those things, just this little paradox, we even talked about that process in which if you do a good job educating rural students, this might lead to outward migration. So this conflict that exists sometimes within. One of the authors, maybe more, more than one, actually, I talked about the, the brain drain. And I, I know right where I live, that's a, it's a big issue here. Like if your school, the dilemma, the paradox is if your schools do really well and really train up kids to give them a lot of options in life, they're like, likely to choose an option that's somewhere else. And if the schools don't do a good job, and so people are not well prepared locally, then you've got a lack of available local leadership and talent. So the dilemma is, which is better to train them to leave or to leave them untrained so that you have a void of leadership and talent? Well, naturally, uh, the latter is not at all acceptable. And I, I think any of us that work in rural areas, and I've also worked in a lot of uh, Native American uh, communities and with uh, Alaska Natives and all that. And, and we have the same thing right here where I live, the whole sense of we need to keep kids here. You know, we, we raise these kids. We think this is a great place to live. We want them to stay. We want to keep our culture intact. And yet, the reality is the ones that are the best trained are the ones that have the most options that are most likely to leave the rural areas. So that's kind of the dilemma. A lot of the um, approaches that states are using to try to retain after they recruit teachers right. to rural areas involve a grow your own type program. And it's mentioned several times throughout the book. Right. Can you can you talk about a grow your own program in terms of that brain drain that you just mentioned? Well, I know some uh, some of the programs that were mentioned in the or profile in, in the book was uh, Alaska's uh, program for nati- native students to try to encourage native students to commit to being teachers while they are still in high school and to help them along the way. And Alabama has a similar uh, project to try to re- recruit within the Black Belt, the, the, which is their, their, their po- poverty region, poverty and rural, to try to recruit uh, talented young people to go into education and to come back. Uh, I, those are all great efforts. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if there is a better way. I think sometimes they realize it's not just the money. It's not just attracting them back with bonuses or uh, so forth, but you have to be sure they really have a understanding of rural life and a love for it and a passion for it. And those are the ones you want to bring along and support and help and uh, get there. I, I think he's right on. I mean, it, it builds local capacity. It helps ensure that local schools remain open if you can actually staff them. And there's research that indicates that when small rural communities lose their schools, they tend to die. And so keeping your mm live and fully staffed is an important step in that process. And I also think it's the case that recruiting rural people to rural places makes sense in the sense that people can be really surprised what 
life in a small town is like if it's something they've never encountered before. I mean, people know you, they know your business. And, you know, if you stay a while, you'll marry them and do business, (laughs) (laughs) all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, you have to be prepared for the sort of um, communal life that small places offer. And, and, recognize that you as an educator have a certain degree of visibility that you might not have in larger places. That goes to that term multiplex, which I think was used in the book, that those connections are so uh, overlaid that there is that, like you said, that it's a small town feel all the time, wherever you go. When you look at it from a perspective over the decades of what's happened in rural schools, you also realize if that's the greatest strength, those bonds among people that strengthen the community, that understanding and commitment to place and knowing where I am and all that, that's also what they've lost a lot when you started, mer- mm. you know, consolidating districts, merging schools, closing schools. And uh, in our region in the Midwest, a lot of the rural areas, but we also lost where a lot of well-paying uh, uh, jobs and industries that were mm. in the small towns. And so, when why we say we want to be asset focused, we also realize that what's in greatest jeopardy often are the greatest assets in the rural areas. And just shifting a little bit here, I just want to quote because we talked about equity a lot. And so in the book, you talk about ultimately, we believe that the capacity to engage, support and champion rural district schools and educate students in communities is a matter of equity, that students should have access to equitable education opportunities, regardless of the rural zip codes. The importance of having rural education um, in a conversation around equity as we get sort of tension and priority around it. Roughly a fifth of students in this nation are rural. That's not nothing. So we're talking about a sizable minority of young people who go to school in places that have particular needs and particular strengths um, that deserve to be attended to. So I think that's one point about why equity matters in terms of paying attention to uh, rural education, just sheer number. I think another uh, argument to be made about why this is so important is that rural life, rural community, learning in a rural place can be qualitatively different and worth preserving. You know, Sam talked about the power of place, sort of knowing where you are, having local knowledge, feeling connected, having strong relationships with the people around you. Those things are important and worth uh, supporting through policies that empower and enable local places. One thing I throw in, because while I was doing this book with uh, Caitlin, I was also editing a book on equity for children from poverty. Where we made the case was whether you look at if you want to look at it and say uh, equity question for rural. Well, where there's the greatest equity need is where you're both rural and poor. There are places that are rural and affluent, uh, not that they don't need due consideration, but that's not where we have the great uh, equity issues. And I don't mean just you as a family might be impoverished, but as a community, you might be impoverished. And I see the extent to which uh, districts right around me, little, little districts go to try to maintain their local schools by, you know, 
stretching to the limit what their people pay in their property taxes. And so you have rural areas where the people are paying far more in property tax than people in a nearby suburban district to try to hang on to those rural schools, and yet they have less dollars to work with. So all of that, to me, relates to equity in terms of uh, where there's some uh, element of, of poverty or lower means, both on the part of the people and a part of the tax base in the community and the district itself. And why would we not want to ensure that a fifth of the nation's young people have everything they need to live, you know, satisfying, contributory, uh, self-actualized lives? They deserve what every kid in any larger and or more affluent place deserves. You know, the fact is, and as I looked at this issue a few years ago from a school improvement lens. If you look across the board nationally, kids from rural schools do as well or, or better than kids from urban schools or suburban right. schools. So you go like, so what's the problem? <laughs> well, the the fact that they on the average do as well as better. I mean, there's a lot of them that are in, they're rural, but they really got some strong circumstances, great schools, strong communities, whatever. But hidden in that are the places uh, where uh, there is uh, pockets of poverty that happen to be rural pockets, and those kids don't fare well. Could you elaborate a little bit more about some non-traditional innovation, um, innovative approaches that the authors sort of spotlight, building on what you said, place makes a difference, was the use of place-based instruction, communities to enroll folks in STEM, and to make that more focused on the community as you look at an instructional model. One of my favorites is called M3T, which I think stands for Mountaineer Master Math Teachers. And I love this project partly because I know some of the principal players in it and have watched them build this thing over the years. It is essentially helping master teachers learn how to support the teachers in their own schools to query their practice by asking simple questions like, what's bothering you, (laughs) you know, in terms of your own instruction, and then trying things, iteratively testing them and spreading them across the school if they seem to have promise. But another thing that I think is really cool and kind of um, uh, affirmatively rural about this project is the way that they've engaged the State Department to be at the table and be a support as an equal partner. Watching that happen has been a real joy, and it it demonstrates to me the possibilities inherent in real collaborations between state and entities and more local districts. One thing I sometimes we almost forget that it's there because it's so part of our rural life and places that are within the range of extension offices from land grant colleges, which I believe there's over a hundred now, but what they do in terms of county extension and through their four for through four H through all the kind of programs that's out there in those communities. Uh, it's, it's tremendous. And to be able to say, so how do we better link with them, support them, partnership with them is a, I think a big question. And Aaron Sorber gave some examples of some countywide work in West Virginia, countywide partnerships in in rural areas. 
I think the notion that it's countywide is a good focus. They're able to pull together a lot of strong partners that have a commitment to uh, the local area. And I think a couple of you said, I, I love place-based programming at the student level in terms of curriculum and instruction. I mean, to, to understand what's right around you and the history of it. And uh, there's so much to learn uh, for kids. I think that is wonderful. And then we talked a little bit earlier, Melissa, the idea of growing your own teachers and pipelines and all that. There's some innovative work going on in that. And I think we've mentioned a couple of those programs. If I could follow up on Julie's question, um, because the the recommendations that you have and some of the innovations really do look through a state's lens, and yet they are also things that could be leveraged at a local level. So how do you see the balance between what the state can do and what the LEA, the local superintendent or the local leaders can do to make sure that projects or initiatives or any of these recommendations can be acted on and move forward together. We put forward what we call a call to action, where it was really a bring together the the uh, entities, the partners, the organizations. I think the reason we wrote to a state SEA focus because we thought that's where there's a real void. There just isn't that much there, giving them guidance about what to do. But we soon realized what we're recommending could be done just as well by a district, a group of districts, whatever. So we have, uh, uh, I think, uh, an item bank of about 46 items for the to, the group that comes together to reflect on. We could do that reflection relative to the whole state. We could also do it relative to a county, a region, a district, uh, so forth. So I think that was a little bit rationale, Caitlin. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. And it's also the case that state entities may have access to other networks and resources that localities might not have. And so bringing them to the table adds additional support to the, the joint partnership between them and localities. And I think, you know, it, all of this works best if there are, if there's honesty and strong relationships between all of the participating entities so that a district can say, we're willing to negotiate about, negotiate about who does what. And in that process, here's what we are able to do and what we're unable to do. And it is possible that state agencies with their additional resources and networks can step in and, and support with some of those. Just a couple of thoughts. One is that Georgia, I believe, just instituted a new position at their state level. There's a um, SCA position that was created for rural outreach. And so that's exciting. In Arizona, our superintendent of public instruction just uh, called for a rural advisory council. And she's going to be meeting with those people on a regular basis to get perspective from rural education communities that her SEA can then assist them, support them, provide resources to them, and ensure that those communities have what they need from the state perspective. And like you said, Caitlin, being able to tap into their resources so that you can get things done in your local context is important. Um, I think this is a really interesting time for rural people and places because the advocacy that's been going on for the last 10, 15 years is paying off in the sense that I have seen more talk from at both the federal and state levels about rurality than I have before. And, you know, I know of rural education advocates, practitioners and researchers who've been invited to the table by um, this administration. So I'm 
really interested to hear about these state level changes as well. That's very promising. So last week, uh, we had some of our ADI staff consultants from around the country uh, here from Arkansas, from Mississippi, from Colorado. And some of them have been working with Alaska with the commissioner and the department there to launch a rural focused program, which is is really exciting. But it's not like we went there and said, we've got a program for you. We went there and said, you're you're interested in helping rural schools. Yeah, they're really the ones that are most trouble. Okay, let's sit down and talk about what we're going to do. So it's creating it with them. Mm -hmm. And um, it reminded me when I, I said er, that earlier, uh, about a year ago, and uh, we had a project with the uh, four states on Native American. And one realization I came to in interviewing bunches of uh, superintendents and principals and people in, in um, Native schools was they were saying, you know, we have good things that start right here, that start with our tribe, that start with our schools. We don't always need the state to come and say, hey, we got a new program for you. We need the state to come and say, what are, you, what are you doing that's working and how do we help you grow it? And how do we maybe help tell your neighboring uh, communities about it? So that's a whole different approach. And to think that you design something and take it to them. It's go and you listen and you discover and you help them grow it. The people-focused approach. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> So you've, we've launched the publication, we're getting the word out there, we're excited about this conversation that you have, which is setting up the challenges as well as the opportunities and the non-traditional and innovation approaches and reflecting from examples across the country. What are you planning to do next? I think that we um, are looking forward to working with sites. Sam has mentioned the work in Alaska, and we would be thrilled to provide service to other states and localities, since that seems to be possible with this framework as well. And occasionally, uh, Sam makes noises about writing a follow-on. Uh, so <laughs> I, I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, you do. Oh, you're just joking. Okay, I get it. <laughs> One was enough. <laughs> no, that's the, the, we had such good collaborators on this. The four authors plus you. This yes. is a breeze. It was just fun. Do you want it to just give a summary of the authors? Because we haven't mentioned those, but I know you've just really thought through each chapter and have a focus. Uh, sure. Uh, Dr. Jenny Seelig, who is now with NORC, she was previously with the Spencer Foundation, wrote the chapter on a clear view of rural education where she really discusses the um, issues associated with defining morality to include the incredible diversity in rural communities. The Next chapter was about rural educators, and that was written by Dr. Karen Epley, and she is at um, Penn State. And so her work focused on some of the key issues that confront rural leaders and uh, educators, staffing, training, retention, professional development, contextual factors that affect rural teachers. So for example, the, the need in many places for educators to play multiple roles in their schools. Then there's a chapter on rural learners written by Dr. Shanika Williams, who is now in Michigan State. And she looked at the research having to do with what it's like to be a rural learner. And she, um, you know, makes the 
point which Sam made earlier that I think is really important that once you control for socioeconomic status, rural students perform as well or better than non-rural students. And that's really important for uh, readers to recognize. And then there is a chapter written by Dr. McHenry Sorber. Um, she's at West Virginia University, and she her specialty is rural micropolitics around education. And so she talks about the research on um, community relationships with schools and how they can be extremely supportive, but also fraught. Um, and she highlights some innovative uh, community kinds of collective impact projects as well. You have Herbie Rides the Bus, gives a whole narrative, which I really appreciated. And then you have a section on poems and poetic prose included and movies to really bring out that sense of identity. So I really appreciated that. Melissa, over to you. What I can say, Julie, is as a superintendent, like I said earlier, a lot of what you're recommending um, for future action or for strategies for dealing with barriers or challenges that you might face at a local level, these recommendations can work for a school community. It doesn't have to be necessarily something that you're partnering with an SEA on. It it might be more resource rich if you do, and having more people at the table means you have more brains trying to solve a problem, certainly, but as a local leader, I could pick this up and say, you know what, there's some really great ideas here that I could move forward working with either my county, as you mentioned, Sam, or with just the people in my rural community. So from a practical standpoint, this is something that I can use as a rural leader. So I appreciated that about the book very much. And just to add on to that, each chapter has action principles for states. So there are things, as you said, for states as well. And I appreciate you saying, Melissa, that you can, um, LEAs and others can also look at the practices and discussion and move forward. So thank you. Um, I wanted to add one thing, Melissa. I'm so glad that you feel that way about the book because for us, the sniff test is, is it sufficiently sensitive to people doing the, the hard work in rural places. And so if it can pass your sniff test, I think we're so just wrapping up, thinking about this rural community of practice and that we're so excited that we, you know, I can share what you've been writing with our community. We're about to go into our third year, which is, you know, building up how we can partner and listen to uh, folks working in rural contexts as states and and look at um, how that would sort of influence what we do and how we see things. As we move to um, topics, what are some things we could brainstorm with you that we might look at in our year three? This isn't a topic, but it's a a format or protocol that that I'm hungry for, especially after a year of COVID. And uh, when I said we had a project with four states on Native American and we had SEA people and tribal people and school people, but because of COVID, we did it all virtually, which actually was more productive than I would have guessed. But there's something you really lose, I think, uh, by not being face to face. I mean, I'm really hungry to see some places, whether it's a county, a state or whatever, that pulls these people together, as we've suggested, across stakeholder groups and engages in real reflection on the kind of topics we've given them. And you, we could do it virtually. Anybody could do it virtually. We could help somebody do it virtually. 
I'd really encourage somebody to try it face to face where if you can really get these people to know each other for a couple of days. I think a lot happens when you're there and you, know, you have lunch together, you're uh, in the same room, you see people's faces. That's more of a format uh, recommendation than a topic. I would love to see a, I don't know, compendium of promising, interesting, locally designed interventions and programs that are rural. I mean, you there are all kinds of these things for um, urban and suburban areas, and they're great, and they make sense for those places. But I would really love to see more elevation of cool rural practices. So maybe, you know, talking about what's happening and how do we help um, illuminate, highlight these practices so that more of our rural colleagues can access them. And then I think there are sort of perennial rural issues to explore and they always need to be explored because the world is always changing, you know. How do you recruit and retain rural teachers, especially in high need subject areas in a nation that continues to urbanize? Uh, how do you ensure that uh, rural students have access to all of the fantastic, rich resources and instructional experiences that, that kids in larger and wealthier places have access to? How do you integrate place-based learning with the state content standards so that you can help kids see the relevance of their learning to their local contexts? Well, we're coming to the end of our wonderful time together. Thank you so much, Caitlin, and thank you so much, Sam, and for writing with your authors the Cultivating Rural Education, a People-Focused Approach for States. I hope this is the beginning of a longer conversation as talk about the reality of looking at and making and learning with and from one another, either you know through different state agencies and with um, folks in communities, rural communities, to make a big difference. Keep nourishing them close to my heart as I grew up in a very rural, remote community myself, and, and it is part of my identity. And Melissa, thank you for having us. Well, thank you all for spending some time with us today. I, I really enjoyed learning about the why and the what behind the book and what your plan is to go from here. And thank you, Julie, for being my awesome co-host. I appreciate it. <laughs> Your willingness to, to take the time to spend some time with me. Love learning through conversations and learning with and from folks. So thanks.
proud member of the Podnuga Network.